Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. The centenary edition of the 24 Hours of Le Mans has been run and won, with Ferrari taking an emotional victory on its return to the top class of sports car racing. James Collado, Antonio Giovinazzi and Alessandro Pierre Guidi steered their Ferrari 499P to the outright win ahead of the Toyota driven by Sebastian Buemi, Kiwi Brendan Hartley and Rio Hirakawa. There was another Kiwi on the bottom step of the podium with Earl Bamber, Alex Lynn and Richard Westbrook finishing third in their Cadillac. Closer to home, there was Speed Series action at Winton Motor Raceway. Joey Mawson clean-swept the S5000 races on the weekend when title rival Cooper Webster recorded a costly DNF. Michael Clemente, Tom Oliphant and Bailey Sweeney split the TCR Australia wins, while Jude Barguana was unbeatable in V8 Touring Cars and Lockie Dalton had a standout weekend in Trans Am taking all three wins. Tony Riccadello, Josh Haynes and Jordan Caruso shared the sports sedans wins. Matt Hillier swept the Australian Formula Ford races and the Touring Car Masters wins went to Steve Johnson with two and John Bauer with one. The supercar season continues this weekend with the Darwin Triple Crown. For the second year running, the Trek North will mark the official Indigenous round with teams having been busy unveiling their special liveries, most of which have been spectacular. The Darwin Heat is likely to put driver cooling with these Gen 3 cars back on the table after it sparked controversy at the last heat-affected event, the Newcastle 500. Both Erebus and Grove Racing will go into the event with more robust cooling systems than they used at the season opener, and we'll have more on that later. Fabian Coulthard's return to Carrera Cup has been locked in, the Kiwi to join Porsche Centre Melbourne from Darwin onwards, and Toby Price added a ninth Fink Desert Race crown to his name and a third straight on four wheels over the weekend. The bike's win went to David Walsh for a fourth straight year. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that I'd forgive for wrecking our car on the first lap of a 24-hour race, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? Hello, Andrew. I am very well, thanks. No doubt a bit uh, better than they were feeling in that Cadillac garage when that car went in the Mm. wall on the first lap. Did you uh, get to watch much of Le Mans on Sunday? I tuned into uh, bits and pieces. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I sort of had to see. I'm not a... I'm not a massive Le Mans fan, but uh, it's always, you know, it was obviously an interesting year with all these new brands coming in and these new rules, and it kind of felt like the race was uh, was living up to the hype. You know, I was sitting there watching lead changes happen, going, this is this is interesting. Like you, I uh, sort of always come into Le Mans with a bit of a cold start, not following the WEC too closely, but um, the most interesting thing I learned about WEC on the weekend was the fact that it's written into the sporting regulations that competitors can't complain about the balance of performance. 
that's that's amazing. Like, wow. let's hope supercars doesn't get any ideas from that. Oh no, that that would be taking our uh, our gagging orders to a whole new level. Yes, that is. Uh, that is, I think the most interesting thing I learned is the damage that a squirrel can do to the front of a Toyota. Yeah, that didn't uh, sort of come out until afterwards, did it? Yeah, you wouldn't think uh, you wouldn't think it could do that much damage, a little squirrel, but there you go. Well, it's not just race week for supercars, Stefan. It is Indigenous round, and that means there has been a deluge of new liveries to enjoy over the last few days, and there's still a few on the way. I have to say, I feel like there's been a general step up in terms of the effort that's gone into the liveries this year. I mean, this is the second time that this is the official Indigenous round, and a First Nations-inspired livery is actually compulsory. Um, but boy, we saw a few box checks last year where as little effort as possible seemed to go into satisfying the criteria. Probably the best example of that was the Cam Waters car last year, which was pretty uninspiring. And for what I understand, that was actually because of pushback from Monster regarding corporate identity and the livery and not actually Tickford's fault. But anyway, whatever's changed in that time this year, the Monster car has a full and very impressive livery. Um, there's a lot more integration with Indigenous related partners and charities as well. I feel that, you know, basically the idea is being embraced to a different level this year across the board from all the teams. Is that a fair comment, do you think, Stefan? Yeah, I think it was always going to be done a bit better in the second year. The teams have had more time to prepare and there were clearly some learnings from last year as well in in terms of how to tell the stories of the art in the announcements and, and the rollout plan in the lead up to the event. So I do think forming those relationships with the artists and their businesses and in some cases foundations as well is really critical to this Indigenous round delivering on its promises because, yeah, just rolling a car out with a livery on it isn't enough. They have to be contributing to the community in some way and I think we have seen more of that this year for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, Erebus kind of made a point of that last year. They didn't do much with their with their livery, but made a charitable donation, or Betty did, you know, to say, well, here's here's actually something we're doing that makes more of a difference than just some stickers. It'll be interesting to see what they actually do this time around, obviously, with a different major partner with the team and that sort of stuff. But yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely right. I think that's sort of what I mean. There's just better. There's just there's been just a much higher level of effort go into it. What's caught your eye from the livery so far? I don't think there's been any shockers at all, but who's been doing the business in your eyes in terms of how the car looks? Yeah, I think um, the overall presentation's been great and, you know, we're talking here on Tuesday, so there's still some pretty significant ones to come. But, yep. again, you look at sort of the overall program and I think from what we've seen so far, like what Triple Eight and Super Cheap have done alongside racing together is a great thing and, Hopefully most people have heard of Racing Together already, but it's an initiative to get young Indigenous kids involved in motor racing. So, you know, for them to have a few of those kids design the art and then bring them to the workshop for the unveiling, it's it's just great. And it's ultimately where the Supercars Indigenous round struggles for authenticity compared to, say, yep. the football codes is a lack of representation within the sport. So, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully that evolves into the future. Absolutely. Um, what could we see form-wise this weekend, do you reckon? It's been so hard so far with these new cars to to predict what's going to happen heading into a round, you know, and, you know, previous years we would sit here and talk about who we think is going to win and who's not and whatever, but surely we're getting close enough to be able to have a stab from what we've seen so far. Who's on for a good one in Darwin this weekend, do you think? Well, yeah, we can only really talk about 
the key questions heading into a weekend this year rather than the answers because there's still so many unknowns and clearly yeah. the biggest variable is how competitive the Fords will be. Like there's been a lot of work done since Simmons Plains on trying to get the Ford motor where it needs to be in terms of the shift recovery and the part throttle cam control and all those things that we've talked about for weeks. So even though the team tests at Winton got rained out, there was a bit of engine map evaluation running done there and then a full day at Queensland Raceway with DJR as well. So clearly a lot of efforts gone in, but will it put them at the front? That's the big question that we won't know really until Saturday afternoon. What we do know in that space is that it's a track where the DJR philosophy of car has worked well. Even in the yep. last couple of years without Penske and McLaughlin, they've pretty much had the fastest cars there. So, yeah, it'll be fascinating in particular to see how DJR goes. Yeah, and probably a similar story for, say, like David Reynolds, who, you know, generally does go well there as well. But where is that Grove package going to be, particularly as they, you know, even had a little stumble as kind of the pace-setting Ford team um, in uh, in Tasmania, they kind of didn't look all that sharp there. So, yeah, look, we, we've got this new engine map coming, so that will be interesting to see what happens. It still feels like, you know, the team, the, the, the teams or Ford Performance still feels like it's going to be a Band-Aid solution. You know, it is still messing around with, with, with that shift recovery and that sort of stuff, and we don't necessarily still have a full picture of what is going on, but it will uh, be fascinating to see um how that plays out and you know obviously you know we can still ask the question you know where is where is Erebus going to be you know are they still going to be the team that is absolutely setting the pace you know even though they didn't you know they didn't get a chance to test they were never going to use a full test day at Winton uh last week they were going to use their evaluation but they didn't even get to do that and Triple Eight's gone out and had a full test day so I guess you know how much benefit has come from that that's something we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, those, the key things we do know are that Erebus clearly are the hunted. They've done a magnificent job so far this year, but Triple Eight are very good at hunting people down in the second half of a season. So, yep. uh, yeah, even just looking at those two Chev teams, fascinating to see how that's going to play out in the next couple of rounds, including obviously Hidden Valley. As I mentioned at the top of the show, driver cooling will be back on the table this weekend. It's something we haven't discussed much since the season opening Newcastle 500, where, of course, it was a huge deal. Um, now, from what I understand, the teams that run the chill-out system have effectively followed Triple Eight's lead and put a dry ice helmet cooling fan system in their cars. Those teams are Grove Racing and Erebus. Um, of course, I'm sure they've very carefully mounted the dry ice radiator on the passenger side of the car after all the drama it caused Triple Eight in Newcastle. Um, so just to recap how this all works, the teams running the traditional dry ice systems have cool air for the helmet fan, um, but the electric chill-out system doesn't provide that. It only it only feeds the, the cool suit. Um, Erebus and Grove went without cool helmet air at all in Newcastle, and David Reynolds and Will Brown in particular really suffered in the heat. Obviously, Triple Eight did have a separate dry ice system for helmet fans, put it on the wrong side of the car, and the rest is history. Stefan, do you expect cooling to be a hot topic over the weekend? Well, as you say, supercars and the teams have had plenty of time to sort this out since Newcastle, so you'd hope they would at least have that right um, in terms of the, the helmet air, which was so critical in Newcastle. But, um, yeah, just putting those two teams aside, clearly heat will be a talking point because it always is there. And even with the old cars, the driver cooling was never perfect. You know, the cool suits were always prone to issues. And then outside of the, the driver welfare stuff, like it's it's a pretty big test again for these Gen 3 cars and how they race in this high heat condition 
how the front tire temps go when you're in behind another car. We'll sort of know a lot more about that side of it, I think, through this weekend. And like always, I'm sure there'll be other things that we haven't thought of that'll pop up as a result of this as well. Well, David Reynolds will be a driver to watch this weekend for a number of reasons. As I just said, he normally goes pretty well here in Darwin, but he has also uh, been one of those heat-affected drivers and been, has been doing a lot of work in the sauna to get on top of that. So this weekend will be a test for that. And it's kind of a home round for Davey in a way because his partner, Tahan, uh, is from here in Darwin and uh, has all the family in tow this weekend. So anyway, I grabbed Dave for a chat about what he's expecting from the Darwin Triple Crown, and here's what he had to say. Yeah, this is kind of a home round for you in a way because of the family connection through Tahan and stuff. Do you sort of enjoy coming up here? And Yeah, I, I love coming to Darwin. We always try and make it a bit of a family holiday. And I've got a new baby. She's eight weeks old, so this is our, like, Lion King circle of life Pride Rock tour, <laughs> showing off Simba to the family. So, um, yeah, it's really cool. We always try and make a holiday sort of before and after, so... Yeah, we tick the family box and <laughs> don't have to come back here in wet season. <laughs> that's, that's, um, <laughs> do it when it's perfect. That's good thinking. Um, what's What are you thinking this weekend? You generally go really well here. You've had some great results yeah. here, but obviously it's a brave new world with these Gen 3 cars. What are your expectations? Oh. Can you have any expectations at the moment? Yeah, honestly, I've got really no idea what's going to happen rocking up to every track with these new cars because, you know, you just don't know. Like, we thought we'd be really good at Tassie. We weren't at yeah. all. So, you know, we thought we might be okay at Perth and we were really strong. Um, Newcastle, you just didn't know and we yeah. were, you know, there or thereabouts. Grand Prix was pretty much the same. So and it's, just a, it's just a bit of a lucky dip. But <laughs> that's, the, that's the fun. That's the fun of like having a new toy to play with. You don't really know how you're going to go. Tassie was a bit of a dip in terms of form because you guys have sort of been the leading light for the Ford teams, at least yeah. in the in the Mustang Cup, as some have said yeah. so far. Um, do you sort of know where things maybe went a bit wrong there? Do you feel that you, yeah. you can bounce oh, back from that? Yeah, the, like, it's all well and good. We sit down and have a big debrief and we talk about everything. We've always got theories of what happens, but you don't really know. You don't really, really know. Yeah. You just have theories, so... But, um... Sometimes your theory might work, sometimes it might not. You kind of really don't know till you go back there next year and if you've got the same car, you test everything. So, yeah, um, yeah. I think we, we know where we went bad and hopefully we don't make the same mistake this weekend. But, yeah, Darwin's always been really good for me. It's a pretty easy track, pretty simple track, uh, quite fun, enjoyable, real positive experience being here and it's, I don't know, I've, ha- I've been bad here, don't worry. I've qualified <laughs> on the back row before. So, you know, it's our sport. You heavily rely on your machinery and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Are you worried about that one kilometre long straight, given the fact that uh, there has been question marks about the performance of the motor? Y- yes and no. Like, you know, last year our motor was shit house, and, you know, I still qualified in the front row once. So, you know, everything it's always possible, which just makes it really hard over, you know, races. Um, you can't hide horsepower. You know they call it motorsport for a reason. Mm-hmm. Need a good motor, but you know I don't. The big I, dong for the big day, as our friend yeah. <laughs> once said on a different yeah, podcast. Yeah, that was a uh, that was a moment in time where we predicted the future. <laughs> Funnily, I don't know how we did, but we did. We did some amazing things. Um, 
Oh, fuck, that was fun times. The, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hot up here. Um, yeah. You really yeah. struggled in these new cars in the heat yeah. um, in Newcastle. We haven't yeah. really had to worry about it since. What are you expecting this weekend? You've been doing the work in the sauna. You yeah. guys have got a dry ice helmet fan. Yes, we just got it. I believe. So, yeah, what are you, um, what are you what expecting? Are we yeah, it's always pretty hot. It's, you know, 30-odd degrees every day here. Um, it's just a big contrast because the last couple of rounds have been pretty cold. So, and living in Melbourne, it's extra cold. But I've been trying to do all the work I can in the sauna to try and get me sort of used to it. Um, we've got a new dry ice helmet system, fan, you know, cooling system, which I haven't had before. So hopefully, you know, that sort of brings my temperature down a little bit and makes the cool suit work more effectively. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's just. I think it wasn't too bad because, you know, back in the day we used to do 200k races here, which is we're only doing 100k races, yeah. so it's not so bad. But um, yes. What do you do in the sauna? Tell me about the sauna. Oh, the sauna dude, break. I just try and live live in it as long as I can. Um, How long were you, do you spend in it? Well, when I first got it, I, I could spend 20 minutes and I was that was me. I had to get out. Yeah. And now I can sit in there pretty comfortably for 45, 50 minutes, done an hour before. At what temp? As hot as it can go. I just... The the, the 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 taco says um, <laughs> 95 degrees centigrade, but that's not really that true. So I don't really know, but it's as hot as it can go. And I figured out the more humidity it gets, the the colder it gets. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. So the yeah. more the more like uh, water you splash on the rocks, the the colder it gets. It's weird. I don't know. So I, I don't know what the science is behind that, but. Um, but you yeah. think it'll make a difference? Well, I think so. I don't know. Yeah. I've got no idea. If, 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 even if it brings me up to everyone else, I'd yeah. be happy because <laughs> yeah. I suck at the heat. Yeah. I've been tormented by the heat my entire life in racing cars. So um, that's why I'm, I didn't mind racing Formula cars because they don't get hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Formula Ford was nice. <laughs> and then after that, I struggled. But yeah. Um, yeah, being a little guy, it sucked. And, you know, living in Melbourne hasn't made it any diff- any better for me. So hopefully it's going to make a difference and we'll hopefully find out soon. Well, apologies to race Winton, but there was no bigger race over the weekend than the centenary edition of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. As I covered off at the top of the show, it was an emotional win for Ferrari, a first in 50 years. Elsewhere, the class winners were the number 34 inter-Europol competition entry in LMP2 and the 33 Corvette racing entry in GTE Am. One man who did plenty of heavy lifting across the Le Mans weekend was Motorsport Network's Jamie Klein, who was integral to the coverage on motorsport.com and autosport.com. So I grabbed him for a chat about this sensational milestone race. Yeah, just how unexpected was this historic comeback victory for Ferrari at Le Mans? Yeah, I think if you would have said last year when the, when the 499P first hit the track, you might have said it was unexpected. But I think given the pace that the Ferrari has shown in the first few rounds of the, of the WEC, don't forget they put it on pole first time out at Sebring. Uh, I, I don't think it comes as a huge shot. Clearly that this program has been geared around Le Mans, ending Ferrari's 50-year absence from the top class uh, at Le Mans. Um, and I think it was clear that they were going to be in the fight, uh, certainly on pace. Of course, they locked out the front row of the grid in qualifying. I think the gap back to Toyota was maybe flattered somewhat by red flags and, and Toyota not getting the most out of their cars. But clearly, Ferrari had one of the most competitive packages. And I think if, if the question mark really was, could they put the whole race together? Could they get the strategy right? Could they react to things in the race? Would they have the reliability? That was the other thing that the driver said 
post-race that uh, they were not entirely confident that this car was going to go the distance because the longest it had done up to this point in a race situation was Sebring, which is only eight hours. Um, so for them to go three times that distance with almost no problems, barring a couple of uh, a, a couple of resets in pit stops in the latter stages was really remarkable job from Ferrari. So it was a case of this just being the fastest package. Obviously, all the reliability stuff you're talking about had to come into it as well, but it was a case of this is just the fastest hypercar package at the moment? Yeah, I think on the evidence we saw through the week, I would say so. But you have to remember, of course, there was that really contentious BOP change that was just dropped from the organisers onto the teams a couple of days before the official test day. Uh, the Toyota was increased in weight by, by 37 kilos, which they estimated was worth more than a second a lap. And after the race, you know, Pascal Vassalon was asked, the, that's the technical director of Toyota, he was asked, uh, what difference did that make in the end? And he estimated two and a half minutes. The winning margin, one minute and 20 seconds or thereabouts. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's multiple ways of looking at it, but clearly... Um, Toyota had the chance to, to, to threaten Ferrari, but just unfortunately a mistake in the closing stages for Rio Hidakawa, whilst the two leading contenders from both of those manufacturers uh, were, were battling away, was, was the thing that made the difference in the end. There was so much hype heading into this Le Mans as the first hypercar Le Mans with all these you know manufacturers being back involved. Is this this sort of historic result, you know, 50 years since Ferrari's been there, does this justify that hype, do you think? Yeah, I would say if you if you saw all the pomp and, and ceremony going on at the track, I mean, the Friday is a traditional sort of dead day at Le Mans where nothing really happens. There's no real track action. But this year, they had the, they moved the driver's parade, which takes place in the city centre. They moved that in uh, to around lunchtime. And then they had all sorts of festivities going on at the track. Um, spectators were staying to the grandstands long into the evening. And this was before the race even started. Uh, you know, we had we had LeBron James as the official starter. We had Tom Brady in attendance. Charles Leclerc, obviously Ferrari Formula One fans will know uh, all about him. Um, and it, you just really felt like you were at the race of the century as it had been built, the hundredth anniversary of the first ever running of Le Mans, of course. And I think to have three different manufacturers on the overall podium in the end, the first time that's been the case since 2016, combined with all of five of the in hypercar showing performance and having cars that were at least in contention, I think the, the ACO that organises Le Mans can, can, can uh, give themselves a pat on the back and say, job well done for putting on this event and having so many cars at least in a position to, to fight for the victory. You mentioned the three different brands on the podium. How would you rank each of the hypercar manufacturers and teams, particularly the newcomers or returnees to top-level prototype racing based on, on the race? Well, of course, you have to say of, of the newcomers slash returnees, Ferrari, of course, had the quickest car. They had the cleanest race. Only really one major issue with the number 50 car, that was the car that, that didn't win the race. Um, in the nighttime hours, it was a, it was a fuel leak, um, sorry, a, a ECU fluid leak that, that cost them time. Um, so I think for them to get those two cars through the race was only one real major issue. I mean, the winning 51 car, had a, a virtually flawless run besides those two power cycles that I mentioned, which probably cost them around one minute each. Um, so, uh, amazing job by Ferrari. I think Cadillac, we have to congratulate them for getting a car on the podium in P3. 
uh, and another one in P4. Sadly, the third string Action Express car had a crash on the opening lap, so that put them out of contention, but they had a more or less clean run after that. So I think Cadillac probably lacked the ultimate pace um, in the end, but uh, they were certainly they were certainly there to keep Ferrari and Toyota on their toes. Then we have to talk about Porsche and, and Peugeot. Peugeot was the, was the biggest underdog because they'd just been not competitive in, in the wet so far. Uh, and, and in the end, both cars had hydraulic issues, but both drivers, sorry, both cars as well had incidents in the night that, that put them back. So I, think, I don't think Peugeot was really expecting to challenge. I think the manufacturer that will be most disappointed is Porsche because they had three of their works, Penske run, 963s in this race. All of them suffered multiple issues that we, we don't really have time to go into in too much detail because there were just so many to mention. Um, and in the end, I think that the, the best of the 963s came home ninth, which is a huge disappointment. One didn't make it to the end. And the Jota car, the customer car, um, was actually leading at one stage before it had a huge crash in the hands of Jiffy Yee. So I think Porsche is the manufacturer that, come, that will come away from this race the most disappointed. And from the uh, from the class battles, what caught your eye there? Yeah, well, it would be remiss not to mention the LMP2 class winners into the Europol competition. Um, a very small privateer team from Poland winning the race. They hadn't even um, only been on the podium once in the WEC before this. And Fabio Shearer, one of the drivers in that car, suffered a broken foot during the race because it was run over by the Corvette during the pit stops. And I went down to speak to him mid-race. And he said, no, I'm not going to go to the medical center. I'm going to soldier on because I don't want to know if it's broken or not. And I want to win this race. And he did win the race. So that is just brilliant stuff from Fabio Shearer. I've got huge admiration for the way he just put the pain out of his mind and just got on with the job at hand. And as we mentioned, Corvette, of course, they won the GTE and Plus. Um, brilliant drive uh, from all three drivers, Nicky Katzberg and Ben Keating in particular, plus the silver driver, Nico Barrow. It's the last race at Le Mans for GTE cars because we switched to GT3 cars next year so there won't be a we think there won't be a factory Corvette racing team so for Corvette to score their ninth win uh, in at, at class win at Le Mans uh, in the last ever race for GTE cars I think was a definitely a fitting result as well all right, let's take a look at what else happened around the world over the weekend. Francesco Bagnaia extended his MotoGP championship lead with a comfortable win at Mugello. The Ducati rider also won the sprint race. Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco completed the podium for the Grand Prix, while Jack Miller finished seventh. And Martin Truex Jr. won the NASCAR Cup Series race at Sonoma in his Joe Gibbs Racing Toyota. Truex Jr.'s crew chief is, of course, Aussie James Small. Okay, Castrol mailbag time. Tim Matheson asked about qualifying formats and says he reckons MotoGP has the best and is something supercars should consider as it would help with the congestion at tracks like Simmons Plains. What do you make of that, Stefan? I've got to admit, um, I don't sort of watch a lot of quality outside of F1 and supercars and the Australian stuff. So, yeah, take us through what uh, what is the MotoGP qualifying format. Okay, so basically... The practice sessions count. So in the first two practice sessions, you need to be in the top 10 on combined times to avoid Q1. So the top 10 on combined times go straight to Q2, which is the fight for pole. The rest of the field has to go through Q1. The top two progress to Q2 and the rest are in positions 13 and onwards. And then there's the battle for the top 12 positions, which is Q2. Does that make sense? Have I explained that in any sort of 
reasonable It's always way. a worry when you have to take a deep breath before starting the explanation, but uh, yeah. it does make sense. Does it work? What's your view on it? I think it does. I, I love anything that gives practice some meaning because I just think practice is the most boring thing in the world. So I do genuinely enjoy something that gives guys, you know, it, it puts something at stake because, you know, when only two are going through out of Q1, like it's very easy to not get that right, you know. So there is like actual danger if you don't if you don't go straight through to Q2 that you won't get a chance to fight for pole. So it can be quite confusing. A lot of that is the way the MotoGP timing system kind of works actually it, from memory i'm trying to think i mean I, I, I only cover one moto gp race a year these days generally but like when a practice session is on the timing actually shows combined times not the times for the session so it can be quite confusing trying to work out when you're trying to do a session report yep. and not a not a uh, combined session report it can be quite confusing but anyway um yeah look so I, I think that the system can work and i'm always up for trying new qualifying systems i think that anything that can you know potentially make things a little bit more interesting is is pretty good in saying that i think that you know supercars has got some good formats in its toolbox as well i think the three-part thing works when q3 is short enough and, and i think those 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 back-to-back 10-minute sessions on a sunday for a super sprint i actually really enjoy those what do you think yeah i think um qualifying such a such a balance of giving it more interest than just a, a short single session but not making it too complex. And I think that's where the knockout system that F1 have used for a while and we see on Saturday at the Supercar Sprint Rounds, that's probably a, a great balance between the two because it's simple but it gives you some action through the session rather than just at the end. So, yeah, I think that's probably the best thing that that's out there but – at the same time, I wouldn't like to see supercars run three of those in a weekend. So, yeah, yeah I, th- I think probably what they've got now in supercars is a pretty good balance. All righty. Let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. Stefan, who gets your Castrol star this week? Well, my star of the week is Trans Am driver Lockie Dalton, who, as mm. you mentioned off the top, had a real breakout weekend by dominating the round there at Winton. And uh, he's doing Super 2 as well this year, as you know, and he was on the podium in Perth. So, yeah, he's really starting to emerge as uh, as a bit of a rising star. Mm, yeah, I was talking to someone who's done some driver coaching with him who uh, rates him very highly, and I think we're really starting to see that. So he's definitely definitely on a good path. And, yeah, to be able to go out and run right at the front of that field is, uh, is very, very impressive, and to do it so easily as well. Uh, actually, Cody Gillis had a really standout uh, weekend as well. Another guy who's very new to racing cars, and uh, I thought he did a good job sort of running second and then third in the last race for most of that weekend in what is a tough field. Uh, anyway, my Castrol star is going to go to the Garage 56 entry at Le Mans, the NASCAR that made it through all 24 hours with Mike Rockefeller, Jensen Button, and Jimmy Johnson at the wheel. It was just absurd and incredible and had all these like crazy <laughs> subplots like, you know, Jimmy Johnson having to learn how to drive in the rain, like having done so little driving in the rain before. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I'm not a massive NASCAR fan, but I do enjoy these little things that that series throws up, like the dirt race, like racing in a stadium and like taking a car to Le Mans. I think that uh, it has this kind of fun sense to it um, and it does these outside-the-box things that I always find just just really enjoyable. So I think what we need now is a supercars version, <laughs> and I guess it would be run by Mal Rose who's like the legend of running supercars in 24-hour races. Yes, you uh, say you like these little things that NASCAR does, but, boy, I bet that cost a bit of money to uh, go and do that. We've had a few messages um, saying, yeah, supercars should do this, but uh, 
boy, you'd have to write a pretty decent check. But uh, I would think they got their value for money because it was uh, it got a lot of exposure. It looked like a tremendous marketing exercise. It was just uh, the only the bit that was really odd for me is this Garage Fifty Six. It was still being talked about as this experimental technologies class. And uh, that didn't quite <laughs> Take the most fit basic with. racing car in the world and see yeah. if it'll go for 24 hours. But, yeah, clearly, uh, yeah, something something left field and, uh, yeah, got a, a lot of attention and uh, it uh, had a good account of itself. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.